Welcome back to Beyond the Veil, a podcast about Harry Potter and mental health. I'm your host, Madison Ford. We are back from a brief hiatus. Thank you all for your patience while I got a few things sorted out. And I want to talk to you briefly about what's in the future for Beyond the Veil. So for the most part, our focus is going to remain on individual stories. That's the foundation of our show and what we will always come back to. But one out of every four episodes, we're going to go in-depth on a topic that spans Potter and mental health. We'll be talking about boggarts, dementors, horcruxes, thestrals, and many more subjects, and going in-depth on how we can bring these concepts into our lives on a more practical level to help us deal with mental health issues. Our first topic will be, how do we cast a Patronus? How do we fight off our dementors? For these topic episodes, I want to hear a lot from all of you listeners. I want to know, how do you fight off your Dementors? And what does that mean to you? How do you cast your Patronuses? Let me know your thoughts in an email, reach out to us on social media, and we're going to share your tips and thoughts on the show. So now let's get into today's interview. I had the absolute delight of interviewing Adri Wilson from AccioPolitics, one of MuggleNet's sister podcasts all about politics throughout the Potter series. I was recently on an episode of the show, so definitely go give that a listen. We had a great time and AccioPolitics is fantastic. I spoke with Adri in our interview about her mental health journey and how the AccioPolitics podcast became a part of it. So here we go. All right, welcome back to Beyond the Veil, everybody. Today, we have Adri from Accio Politics on the show. We're so excited to have you. Oh, I'm excited to be here. Let's start off with you just tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you like to do, anything you want to share. Oh, sure. Uh, well, as you said, my name is Adri. Um, I am the host of Accio Politics. I don't even know how to say my own podcast anymore. Um, <laughs> um, I'm originally from Puerto Rico. I grew up, in, you know, in Puerto Rico up to when I was 24, and I then left to grad school um, to do my MA in English because I couldn't just leave it with just a bachelor's. Um, <laughs> just wanted to read more and torture myself a little bit more. <laughs> Um, and I now, um, live in San Antonio. Obviously I have the podcast and I'm also a, um, development, uh, officer at a local nonprofit. So that's what I do. Wonderful. Um, so can you share any Potter information about yourself that you want everyone to know? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Um, I am, for the longest time, I thought I was just a reluctant Gryffindor because I thought, because I'm very ambitious, I should be a Slytherin. But then I figured out pretty quickly that my ambition is not an ambition of at all costs. And I am very much uh, of the character traits of Gryffindors, one of which is, I think, being kind of extra uh, is how I call mm-hmm. it. My extraness is very Gryffindor. <laughs> Um, I started reading the series 
Not because I was like interested in them as much. Um, I got the series as a Christmas gift. (laughs) And um, not the entire series. I got books one and two and only Prisoner of Azkaban was out at that point. And I think I was maybe 13 or maybe 12. I'm unclear right now. It's what happens when you get older. Um, (laughs) And I read books one and two fairly quickly within like three days. And then I was just like, parents, take me to a bookstore. I must see if there are others. (laughs) (laughs) And that's, you know, and it was a whirlwind romance. Absolutely. I understand completely. <laughs> um, I also say my Patronus is, I mean, Pottermore says my Patronus is a cat. Mm-hmm. But I say that my Patronus is actually my little white chihuahua, Emmy. She's Aww. very, she's very fierce, <laughs> but very cuddly. Um, mm-hmm. And she's, you know, it's it's how I feel. Like, most of the time, I'm just like... I'm defensive and protective of my friends, but also I'm very like cuddly and all I want is attention and I don't know how to get it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then I'm trying to think my favorite book is, okay, yeah, so for sure, like my favorite book is Prisoner of Azkaban and I think it, um, it's very um, like emotional uh, reason. It's not because of like the plot or anything or like, it's not because it's the best written one, uh, which is not, like, the best answer for an English major. I don't think, Madison, what do you think? <laughs> um, I think, I mean, from an English major perspective, if you're going to write an essay about it, that's one thing. But, you know, this is Harry Potter. It's about your your heart and your your love and your passion. So I think it, I think it's acceptable. <laughs> yeah. I think, it, I think I liked it because even though it's like, we see Dementors and like, that was kind of dark, right? But then also showed us some hope with Lupin and like with Sirius and like, even though that hopes get, hope gets taken away from Harry, um, it's just that element of hope in Harry knowing he's not alone and it, that he has figures in his life that knew his parents and that connection mm-hmm. to his parents, that that's why I love Prisoner of Azkaban so much. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's that's such a um I think I hear a lot of people talk about how much they love like oh the Marauder Marauders <laughs> the Marauders <laughs> they're in book 3 and I love it, but that's such a specific reason why like the presence of the Marauders is so important in that book. It's hope. That's perfect encapsulation of what makes that such a wonderful part of the series well i think it's because harry always feels so alone and so isolated even though he has friends because he's trying to find a sense of belonging through like never knowing his heritage and his parents and through knowing lupin and through knowing sirius he gets to know a little bit more about his parents and that helps him figure out kind of his place in wizarding society um that is separate from being the boy who lived, which is something that others tell tell him he is rather than like him deciding who he wants to be. I love that. So today um, for the majority of our our main interview, um, we're going to talk about a number of different things. Um, 
and kind of starting off with your mental health journey. Um, oh yeah, for sure. So I didn't know I was struggling um, with these things for the longest time. I just thought that, that this was life, you know? Um, I remember, I think the first time I had like, like deep anxiety um, was maybe in the first grade when I was taking a test and like I knew all the answers to every question except one and I started crying like I started getting really hot and red and just started just sobbing because I didn't know the answer to one of the questions or I couldn't remember and I was just kind of beating myself up for not remembering um and it, it was a pretty traumatic event for me um and uh you know, moving forward in my life, anytime like something happened like that, where any like something I did wasn't entirely perfect, um, I, I used to get like the, that same feeling of like just getting increasingly hot and like anxious and like cry about it. Um, and it's just this this idea of like I have to be perfect at all times, um, which is kind of more like a self imposed anxiety, um, I guess. But um, then in uh, the fourth grade, I got my first uh, muscle spasm on like my neck um, and shoulders. And that's kind of like how my anxiety and stress manifest in my body. Um, And I thought that was completely normal. And like the doctor was telling my parents, like, um, I think that if she's under, like, she's under a lot of stress, maybe you should look into like what's causing the stress. And my parents were like, no, 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 she's fine. Like, she's just a very high achieving, like, individual and like kind of set that to the side. Um, And then um, in my adulthood, I realized that my grandmother suffered from depression and I was like, oh, I know that's hereditary, but clearly I'm not depressed because I'm like outgoing and happy and like this person that I am and I'm overachieving. So it's not that I don't have um, the capacity to do things or like that I lack the drive to do things. So um, I thought depression was basically just that. But then clearly I can see that she had anxiety because she couldn't sleep because she kept thinking about people and how li- their lives could go wrong and, and stuff like that. And she was medicated. Um, she ended up taking her own life, which was very difficult for our family. But um, like through through this all, like this this happened in my early 20s. I still didn't think I was depressed or didn't have anxiety. And I, you know, I, I, I'd gone to like counseling when I was in grad school for like um, a really bad breakup and, and, and uh, thesis related stress. Um, but I didn't, I, I always thought that that was like a temporary thing that I needed and not something that I needed long-term um, as, as many of us do. Um, so I just kept functioning and, uh, as my doctor says, white knuckling it through life, um, and, and being like super high achieving and, 
you know, getting a better job and then getting a better job and then giving, you know, you know, just keeping like climbing that ladder. Um, and last year, I, you know, I had this really great job. Um, I was doing really well in it, but then there was like a toxic work environment that kind of made me snap and like, I was like, I need therapy right now. Like I need to see someone like this isn't normal. Um, and you know, I, I went to therapy for about six months, um, before the therapist, uh, was like, okay, so how do you think you're doing? And I was like, well, you know, I, for the longest time, I thought I was doing much better. And we had been dealing with like these surface issues that I thought were causing like this anxiety. Cause I was, you know, before that I was just getting panic attacks on the regular and just, you know, mm-hmm. sobbing in the bathroom at work, you know, normal stuff, normal adult stuff. Right. <laughs> um, and, um, and then I was like, yeah. And then I was, um, uh, then my husband the other day came home from work and I was sobbing on the stairs for no reason. And I don't know what's wrong with me. And she was like, um, okay, we've been doing this for six months. Let's do an assessment about like, you know, your, your mental health right now. And, you know, it turns out depression, anxiety, definitely a thing (laughs) per the assessment. And then she said, okay, I think you need to, you know, talk to your doctor about some medication options, which I think prior to therapy, I would have been very resistant to even take medication for my depression and Mm -hmm. anxiety. Cause honestly, I didn't think I had any issues. Um, I was just, Uh again, high achieving. (laughs) Um, And just when people say high strung, you know what I mean? Like just, it's just a high strung personality. Um, And my doctor has been very lovely and listening to, you know, what's been working and what didn't like my first medication was supposed to make me calm down and it actually wired me. Oh no. <laughs> and I couldn't sleep. Oh no. <laughs> and I tried taking it at like different times of day. I was like, she's like, take it at night. It's going to make you go to sleep. So it'll make you sleep. And, you know, cause that was part of the thing is I couldn't sleep for longer mm-hmm. for long periods of time. I kept like, you know, and if you don't sleep, your mental health suffers. Um, so I started taking it at night and then I couldn't go to bed until like 3 a.m. And then I had to wake up for work. And then I couldn't, and then I woke up like feeling like super alert. Like, like when you were like, I had four Red Bulls, like that's how I felt. Uh-huh. Um, and, and at first I was like, this is great. Cause I feel awake, you know? Mm-hmm. But then it was, became a problem when you can't sleep more than four hours. <laughs> yeah. I could see that being an issue. <laughs> And so then she, you know, she changed prescriptions. She's like, okay, let's change tack. Like these SSRIs are not working for you. Let's look at this other classification of meds and see how they work like as an SNRI. And, um, you know, we, we've kind of tweaked dosages and I feel like we've gotten to a point where they're working for me. I was very worried. Um, I don't know if you can relate, Madison, but I was very worried because with this uh, medication, I was like, hey, so I've stopped caring about every little single thing because before I used to care about everything and now I don't. (laughs) 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 
And she said, she said, okay, explain this. And I was like, well, at work, I usually like if someone is messing up, like they're part of the, their work, I'll like swoop in and help them fix it or I'll fix it myself and like whatever. And the other day, like one of my colleagues was like asking, like ask, hadn't done their job or whatever and something was late and we couldn't submit the proposal or, you know, the, the work without their part of the work. And instead of just doing it myself, I told them, figure it out or else we can't submit this and it's your fault. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> but like, but that's not my, like, that wouldn't be my, my thing, right? Before. Yeah. And she was like, I think that's good. <laughs> <laughs> no, I totally identify. That's a, when you're that kind of, you know, high achieving person. And then you're, when your anxiety starts to go down and it becomes a, you know, that moment of like, all right, well, like, this is your problem now. At first it's jarring. Like, wait yes. a second. Shouldn't I be fixing this problem? But, uh, you don't have to fix every problem and learning that is a, that's tough. (laughs) Well, it it just goes from like, I went from like caring about 100% about of all the things of everyone's work to just being like caring 70% about just my work, you know, instead of just making, because another thing that was, that was very evident to me was that I was making my life just about my work. Mm-hmm. So for the last seven years, which is the the years that I've been um, out of grad school and working, um, even when I was a teacher before grad school, like that was my life. Mm-hmm. I didn't do anything for myself other than like maybe shop, which is not really doing things, right? You're, you're just acquiring materials, right. um, material things. Um, and I enjoy shopping still. It's not that I don't. It's just that that was the only thing I ever did for myself was like buying trinkets for myself. It wasn't like, um, I don't know, taking a lazy day to do nothing or those were very far and few in between of like, or, you know, I don't know, just, just do, just be and not just do. And for the longest time, I felt like, especially these last seven years, I was doing but not being. And mm-hmm. it's refreshing to just be right now. Yeah. It brings me to one of our other topics, which is you talked about kind of, you'd mentioned when we were discussing, you know, what we wanted to talk about, how this... Over butter beers. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but, you know, your how you behave in public in front of other people, you know, like... Um, is not necessarily a great indication of your individual mental health, which is a lot of what you've been talking about. You know, this like to people on the outside, you look like someone who's going to work, you know, you're, uh, you're high achieving, you're doing all of this stuff. And we have these stereotypes about people with mental illnesses, and that doesn't match what we think people with mental illness look like. Yeah, which is also why I didn't think I had any. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and if I did, I, it was certainly not depression and anxiety, right? Like it wasn't 
matching up with my idea of what that looked like. And it wasn't until like the last year that I started to become more open to the idea that I might have that. Um, Mm. And, you know, it took kind of hitting almost rock bottom for me to like think about that that way. So like for most of my life, I've been like super bubbly, um, energetic, you know, um, just very friendly um, cause that's my, that's my personality. Right. But that's different from my struggles. And when people think about depressed people, they think about like morose, like sad, um, individuals. Right. And, and I, I mean, I don't think that's, that's true. Right. Like I, I've met a lot of people who are you know, very friendly, very bubbly, and like they've been struggling with their own mental illnesses. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I've met very reserved people who are quite fine, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and, and like the, this persona that we project, um, or if, even if it's just a our personality, right, has, has very little to do with what we're feeling. And um, I, another thing I'd like to kind of, talk about is that I felt angry all the time, but I never showed it because, you know, women are socialized to hide their anger and pain. Um, (laughs) Just the little thing, that little thing. Um, But I was really angry all the time, which is actually a sign of anxiety. Um, So I was angry all the time and I was angry about everything. And like, I was angry, angry, angry. And I took it all out on myself rather than other people. Because again, socialized to do that. Um, and anger really scares me because I was, I was so full of it that I knew how kind of self-destructive it was. So when other people express anger, it makes me deeply uncomfortable, even if they are expressing it in like a, in a healthy way. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's another thing, right? So, um, so if you find yourself that I'm constantly angry about everything, (laughs) you might have anxiety. (laughs) Yeah, so I was always kind of like high achieving. Like I was not, you know, it, it, it's not like my therapist was like, well, clearly you're not depressed because you had a 4.0. Um, right. And you have like this great career and like you're so high achieving in your career and everywhere you go, you do the work of three people and like it's really hard to replace you, all these things, right? She's mm-hmm. like, She didn't even think about saying those things. She was like, it's not about how you perform because you're just white knuckling it through life. It's about like how you're feeling. It's such a foreign concept to so many people, which that that, that there is not a... The relationship between our outward behavior and how we're feeling inside is not, it's not like parallel, you know, these are, it's a much more nuanced relationship. And I wish that more people knew from an earlier time, just because you're, you know, just because you work a nine to five job without struggling too much, or because you're doing fine in school, that doesn't mean that you don't need help. You know, we could all use a little more help realizing that I think. Yeah, and I also think that it's kind of um, to piggyback off of that um, kind of a toxic idea and mentality is to think about oh um, this this thing that I'm struggling with is my um, superpower mm-hmm. and I'm only doing well because of it. Yeah, 
Absolutely. Kind of like in the same way that we think about artists and their relation and and not all of them, obviously, but some some of their like addiction issues and how they're like, oh, their their genius is like comes from like their drug addiction. Right. Um, I find that um, I was very scared for a long time of meds and treatment because I thought that my pain fueled my greatness. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and not that I thought I was like so like great, but like I was afraid that without my pain, I was not going to be as good. Yeah. And um, I hadn't written anything for about seven years. I used to write a lot. And my words kind of, I, I say that my words had left me, which I think is why I started the podcast because my words had left me um, mm-hmm. for seven years. And depression took my words from me. That was the last thing it took from me um, that I can kind of inventory. Um, it took a lot of things away from me, but I mean, I'm slowly getting the things that it, it took away from me back, but it was really strange to get my words back. Like, obviously I, I write a lot for work, but writing for work is not the same as writing creatively. Yeah. Um, so I never felt ownership over those words, more like, oh, I'm just doing this for work. But so it took my words from me and um, I had grieved that and I had resigned myself to never being able to write again. Um, but for the longest time, I also thought that my pain fueled my writing and my, you know, like the more pain I felt, the better I wrote is how I felt. Mm-hmm. Um, and it didn't help that the only novel I've ever finished, you know, n- not a great one, obviously it need- needed a lot of editing and I'm not going to revise that. I don't think it's like one of the things that you just needed to get out of your way. Um, yeah. It doesn't help that that novel that I finished, I finished at the height of an abusive, um, emotionally abusive relationship. And I was in a lot of pain. So Mm. those two things got conflated in my mind as your pain fuels your writing. Um, So these last seven years, I thought maybe I'm just not experiencing enough pain to write. Oh, that's tough. So I felt like this big emptiness for the last seven years. And I, I didn't know how to quite like point at it and understand it. But, you know, I felt so much pain and I felt so long, like this pain for so long that I think I just became so numb to all the pain that I've been feeling. So these last seven years, I just felt this like gaping hole, like this emptiness and depression just took and took and took away from me. Um, it even took away from me, like my, like I, I developed this social anxiety I'd never had, because um, I am quite the social butterfly usually. Um, it took my writing away from me. It took like my confidence, like all these other things, and I just didn't recognize myself anymore. But I didn't know what it was. <laughs> right. There's a name to this beast. Yeah. Yeah. And in the line of creative work. Um, so in the past few years, you've started the Accio-Politics podcast. Yes. And I'm curious, um, before you started the podcast, what was your relationship like with the Harry Potter books? Okay, so I think I, think I come from it like a lot of other um, fans of the series might come to it, where 
And, and I'm a little bit jealous of people who never lost their connection to the Harry Potter series. I really am. Mm-hmm. Um, I came to it like I was like really into it in high school and throughout like all, like when the series, you know, ended and, you know, the movies and I was like so like into Harry Potter. And then for a while, because of college and the stress of college and like that, you know, the emotionally abusive relationship I mentioned, um, I kind of lost touch with it in a way and rediscovered my connection to it when um, back in 2016, I was driving, um, I had a road trip to go to Santa Fe and do some things. And it was, a. I was living in El Paso back then. So it was about a four hour trip. And I put on, I the only audiobook I've ever had was book uh, seven. So I put it on. And at that time, like, um, actually it was 2017, sorry. Um, you know, Trump was already president and we had all these political issues going on. And I like part of the things that I loved listening to was like political podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I always like to be informed, even though it may fuel my depression. <laughs> um, and then I started listening to book seven and I was like making all these connections to po- like political themes today. And I was like, I wish there was a Harry Potter podcast that dealt with these political themes in the series. And then I just pushed it aside and I couldn't stop thinking about it for the whole weekend. And on Monday I called um, my former, now former co-host Aaron. And I said, Hey, I have this idea. Would you be interested in doing it? And she said, sure. And, and, you know, and Acupolitics was born. And then now I do it with guest hosts. And you were a guest host. Yes. Recently. (laughs) You can listen to that probably by the time this goes up. And it's such a, having listened, it's such a wonderful deep dive, you know, for anybody who enjoys, you know, sticking their whole head underwater into the Potter books. Um, The Acupolitics is exactly that. And uh, particularly when you're looking for more of a political or social justice aspect. Um, I mean, yeah, we, we try to have fun with it, obviously, but oh, yeah. um, I think, honestly, the first few books, it's kind of a little bit of a stretch to find the more like prescient political themes, although there are. Um, but I think as we get in, like right now we're doing Goblet of, I'm doing Goblet of Fire. You were a guest in episode, uh, in chapter 30. So episode 430. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's just getting like the more we dive into the series, the more political it's going to get because yeah. the first few books you spent, she spent world building like this political system. Um, and now we get to see it by she, I mean, Joe, like she, she built this political system from the ground up basically. And now we get to see the interactions of what happens when there's a big threat to this political system and the political system is like, I don't believe it. (laughs) (laughs) So you're listening to the Deathly Hallows book and, uh, and, you know, in this kind of like, uh, period of political turmoil in our country. Mm-hmm. And um, it, I'm curious to know, because I know, I know, you know, very directly that like listening to the audiobooks post Trump getting elected was very important for my mental health. Um, it was a huge, 
part of kind of walking into what felt like a new world. Um, and, you know, the Potter books help people feel less alone in so many different ways. And that's something you talked about when we were uh, talking about your story. And I'm just curious how, why do you think that the Potter books made you feel less alone? I think it made me feel less alone in different stages of my life for different reasons. Mm -hmm. um, when I first started reading the series, I felt misunderstood by my family, as all teenagers do. Yes. <laughs> so the series helped me feel less alone because Harry was not understood by the Dursleys. Mm -hmm. um, and like my mom was trying to like police the way I, I, um, I trust and the way I spoke and like all these other things. And like she was trying to stifle um, my personality in the same way that Petunia is trying to stifle Harry's hair. Mm, uh -huh. So I felt very understood in that context. Um, and then later on, like in rereads, um, and maybe college when I felt like alone, you know, Harry oftentimes feels alone and disconnected from society because he has like this mm -hmm. big burden. And I, you know, looking back, I can, I can see how um, I connected to Harry because he's dealing with like, I, and, and I'm not like, you know, I'm, I'm a armchair psychologist here, but like with deep depression and anxiety later on in the series, even before I think, because he has some PTSD because of abuse. Um, and then, you know, then after, you know, Trump got elected, I feel like it gives me hope that we can rebuild by not, um, by understanding that we all have a, a piece to play in, in just being, holding the government accountable, but not trusting that the government's just going to fix itself. Mm -hmm. So, you know, yeah. so different times, different ways, it doesn't, you know, it makes me feel a little bit more comfort. It's really interesting how, because the books grow from Sorcerer's Stone to Deathly Hallows, they have that range of, you know, affecting you during different life periods and experiences. I think also as we, as I'm rereading um, for the podcast, I'm trying not to get ahead of myself. I'm just rereading the, I'm reading the chapter I'm talking about with the guest right before I do the podcast and then, you know, and so forth. So I'm not trying to get too ahead of myself. So whatever I don't remember, it's because probably my last reread was like 10 years ago. <laughs> um, so it's a good way of kind of having semi-fresh eyes on the issues of the chapter. And it allows me to think about, oh, like this, this thing that I kind of glossed over when I was reading it for pleasure is like a really big issue <laughs> in this universe yeah. and also in our lives. I love how coming back to the books gives you a different perspective every time. Yeah. One of the most surprising things it gives me is empathy for Petunia. Not like saying she's great and she gets a pass from me, but you know, saying like, well, the man, the patriarchy like probably really ruined Petunia. Um, she could have been a better character maybe if she had, you know, 
less of a like sibling rivalry or like another child wasn't just put on on her um when she probably might have been dealing with postpartum depression you know absolutely so with all of these political readings of the books themselves um i'm curious to know after you listened to deathly hallows because there's that moment where you say, wait a second, there's not there's not a podcast, there's not a Harry Potter podcast looking into the politics. So I'm curious, as you were inspired to start it, what kind of what the process was behind that? Like, you know, it was filling a need, you know, something that you had wanted to see and just, can you go a little more in depth on what that process was like as you were? Yeah, um, this is very much like my Gryffindor nature. <laughs> <laughs> of being like, there's not a podcast that does this. Why not me? Um, and also, I it was at a time where, you know, how I talked about my emptiness and how depression, you know, basically took everything away from me. And it gave me a sense of purpose again, um, of doing something again. Um, doing is how I cope <laughs> with my 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 emotions, right? So it gave me a, a sense of like doing and um, that that I could be doing something. And I just um, I read all about like podcasting, and I taught myself how to edit in the first few episodes we hadn't quite figured out how to record separate tracks yet so they're a little bit weird <laughs> so all these things like trying to figure out things I contacted one of my friends and I was like hey could you do some music for this podcast and it was just very like DIY like what can I do like we had like a, a the old old logo is very simple um uh, that i did on illustrator because i had taught myself that in like grad school and like as as the podcast progresses the logos keep getting more sophisticated mm -hmm. thankfully but like you know like just little things here and there just trying trying to do my best yeah well and as you as you started to incorporate the podcast into your life and um you know doing as your form of like, you know, helping yourself cope with difficult emotions. But I'm curious how this doing might have affected those those feelings of emptiness and, you know, the, the negative emotions you're experiencing, how the podcast growing into your life, how did that change your experience? I think a big part of it, to be honest, Madison, is that I got engagement from people I didn't know in real life, um, mm -hmm. just random people who've become like my Twitter friends now. <laughs> um, and part of the thing that depression had taken away from me is that like my, you know, cause my social anxiety and all these things, I had isolated myself uh, from everyone in my life. Mm -hmm. And I had only just like a handful of people who I would speak to. And now I have like this community all of a sudden who's like, you know, reaching out and, you know, sometimes saying, hey, you were kind of out of line with this. And then, you know, but even then it was just like the engagement and like the thoughtfulness of the engagement. Um, I, you know, I have really good like emails, tweets, even now I still do like of very thoughtful people who 
who even if they don't agree with what I'm saying, they'll say, hey, I can see where you're coming from. But, you know, like, like yeah. all that engagement. And I was telling my therapist, because um, I started the podcast before therapy, that a, a lot of my feeling of emptiness sometimes comes from like this isolation that I did to myself uh, because, the, mm-hmm. you know, depression took that social aspect away from me. And I just wanted to connect with people. And for the longest time, my depression and anxiety kept telling me everyone hates you mm. and no one likes you. So I kept believing those negative self-talk, um, which kept me isolated, mm-hmm. right? So even if people did like me, I wouldn't be reaching out <laughs> to people. Um, and so the podcast kind of was like an anchoring force, just kind of being a little bit more centered and it helped me get through that part of my life that would have been in, intensely more in like insanely more difficult than it already was with a podcast um, because I got that community feeling of like people coming around something that we had created and having opinions on it or reaching out and saying like, Hey, this was great. But you know, like, Oh, you know, all these things. I love that. And that's, that's been reflective of my experience as well. This community that grows up around the podcasts and you were going through some difficult stuff as, as you were doing the podcast. Um, mm-hmm. I know you, you told me that you moved, uh, you had to move to a new city without your husband while you were doing the podcast and mm-hmm. how, can you tell us about that? What that was like? Yeah. So I moved to San Antonio from El Paso because I got this like great job that I thought I was getting, which kind of accelerated my breakdown, which now I'm super grateful for it because if not, I'd be still be like just moving through life, not knowing. Um, And so we decided that we couldn't afford for my husband to move here without a job Mm -hmm. as many couples in America have to do right now. Right. And he was living with his parents in El Paso. We had like the lease in our house had gone out, thankfully, by the time like I moved. So, you know, he thankfully had family he could lean on. So he was um, living in El Paso for nine months while he got a job in San Antonio. And I was living alone in this like apartment complex near work, which is full of like college kids, which is not the best when you're a working professional. Um, And so, you know, like the podcast was also the podcast and the community around it. And Aaron, who I got to talk to every weekend when we would record were like, like this community, like this virtual community that I, I had built around me that helped me feel less alone in any city where I didn't know anyone. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It was really like, I I knew being in a new city was going to be hard, but it was much harder than I expected. Um, and, you know, everyone's living their busy lives and I didn't know about like apps that would allow you to make friends with other people who are new in the city. So I was just, and I was working like 60 hours a week anyway. Um, Oh gosh. So like between that and the podcast, like who has life, right? So I would go out and like, I would treat myself to a movie sometimes, but it's not like, and I was ordering in a lot. Like I was not living my best life. Yeah. Understood. That's especially at a busy time like that. It's, uh, it's almost impossible. So you're working a lot at this time. Um, 
And you mentioned that sometimes you're kind of overworking to avoid being alone in your thoughts. Oh, yeah. That's, I think that's like a coping mechanism I've always had. Um, I, for the longest time, I wanted to go to law school. And then I thought, well, I don't want to be those people who work 80 hours a week. And then in every job I've ever had since, I've been that person who works 60, 70, or, you know, 80 hours a week. And when I work a 40-hour week, I'm like, that's it? You know, um, I feel like <laughs> weird about it. Um, so I feel like for the longest time, I've been doing this to myself to like avoid confronting my thoughts, which were very negative towards myself. Um, mm-hmm. And I think for the longest time, me and my therapist were talking about how like to boost my self-esteem and like all these other things, but none of that worked primarily because it mm-hmm. wasn't necessarily my self-esteem that was doing this to me. It was like my depression that was doing this to me. Right. Um, which is hard, a hard thing to kind of pinpoint sometimes because I'm so bubbly outwardly, which is, you know, story of my life. Um, <laughs> and I love everyone else. It's not like I'm hateful towards everyone else, but then I feel like right. no one likes me. And like that, that was the thing that was going on. And now that I'm medicated, I'm like, who wouldn't love me? I'm amazing. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> But, but, you know, that's and, – and even with medication, I still struggle sometimes. Like, I thought, like, I wouldn't feel that emptiness again. And sometimes it does creep back, but it's, like, a little bit more subdued and I can pinpoint it and kind of isolate it and rationalize it away rather than just feel it so intensely. Um, so, yeah, I, I kept doing – doing a lot of things kept me from thinking – Um, So whether it was work, whether it was the podcast, whether it was watching Hallmark movie channel things that were like rosy and lived in a perfect world where there's nothing, there's no hunger or poverty, I guess, Uh, (laughs) this whitewashed community. Um, It's very problematic, these movies, but I kept watching them. and, or, you know, just watching a lot of TV or just self-soothing mechanisms or, or like overeating or, you know, like whatever. Um, mm-hmm. Those those were self-soothing mechanisms to cope with either the lack of serotonin in my brain or just not have to think those or not hear those thoughts that were constantly present in my mind. So it was either like super angry and like lashing out on myself or super negative talk towards myself. Oh, and that goes with the whole, it it aligns with everything you've been talking about, this avoidance of what's inside doing or what was it being or doing rather than being? Yeah, doing rather than being, yes. I just felt guilty every time I would be also, I would try... Let's say part of me being is going to just take a walk around town or something Um, just for no reason. Like it it doesn't have a purpose. Something that didn't have a purpose Mm -hmm. did not fit in my life. Like I felt too guilty to do something without a purpose. Yeah. I understand completely. Like like we're (laughs) robots or something, you know? Right, right. That we we're here on this planet and we can just sit back and enjoy our existence sometimes. It's a novel (laughs) idea. This is a very novel (laughs) idea. I would also sleep a lot, um, which is, again, 
a, a symptom of depression of like whenever I would want to like escape and I didn't have any of my other coping mechanisms, I would just like go to sleep, avoid. Well, I know that eventually you sought help with, mm-hmm. for your mental health. Um, so that was, that was, you mentioned you kind of had this breakdown around this job and um I'm just, I guess I'm just curious because eventually you've started taking um, medication Mm -hmm. for anxiety and depression. So I guess as we get kind of close to where you are right now in your mental health journey, can you kind of talk about uh, the more, your more recent history with that? Oh, sure. Um, So I had my breakdown and then I was dealing with other things, um, um, my husband has been pretty open about his own mental health struggles. So I was kind of like the the caretaker also um, of that because as spouses, you try to take care of each other. And he just, at that point, just all our energy was making, like making sure this is pre me being medicated, um, making sure mm-hmm. he got the right medications to deal with this persistent problem that he'd been dealing with, but never had been addressed with by any of his doctors because they, they misdiagnose all the time. Um, Mm -hmm. And then, you know, then he got better and it took months. Um, And that's another thing um, of being someone who's seen the transformation. um, It's not, you take a pill and then it's better, right? It, it sometimes takes months. Right. And then months, months later, um, when he's, you know, he was finally like stable um, in his mental health, that's when he found me like just sobbing on the stairs. And he's like, you made me get help and I appreciate it. But now you you need to be honest with your therapist about what you're going through right now because this is not normal. And having Mm -hmm. someone who understands the struggles of mental health tell me that made my feelings valid because before I would say, no, 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 it's just, you know, maybe I'm just PMSing, you know, which probably was not PMSing or like, I would say that it was like, I don't know. Sometimes this happens. Like it's totally normal because my parents love them. They're the greatest, but also not they, they're, they, for the longest time, they were very anti um, mental health help and medication. And mm-hmm. it's only been through this journey that I've been on currently that they've accepted it. And they've actually become really mm-hmm. big advocates for like therapy and actually medication because they've seen the transformation that I've undergone and how helpful it has been in my life. Um, for the longest time, obviously they were very worried about me, but also they were like, well, at least she has a job and she's doing so well and she's so high performing, but they had noticed that my voice had changed that because the people who know you the most and the people who, who've known you all your life, they can see those little things when people who've just met you cannot see those little nuances. Yeah. And I remember calling them. When I was in that one uh, pill that worked, but it worked to the detriment of my sleep schedule. <laughs> um, and my dad was like, wow, you sound a lot better because I had like feeling in back in my voice and not just m- like slightly monotone affect. 
And also, I think with our parents, I sometimes we could be the realist version of ourselves, where I would put up an act with everyone else. I would perform. Mm-hmm. And right. like through this journey, and, and I've been very honest with them, like, no, they, you know, I, this medication wasn't letting me sleep. So we've changed to this one. So now I'm going to, I'm in the transition period. And like in the transition period, I was very tired all the time. And like, because like, <laughs> not sleeping takes a toll on you, right? Um, so when you're switching medications, you're a little bit drowsy anyway. Imagine not sleeping and then <laughs> changing. Um, and I was in Puerto Rico for that. And like, they were very understanding of that. And they saw like the benefits of it. And then they, were, they thankfully, they're not like the type of people, especially of the boomer generation that are like, they see evidence of something working and they're still like, oh, still not good, you know? They were like, you know what? I see the value in this. And I think part of my dad's worry was that my my grandmother had been medicated when she took her own life. And oh. we can't ignore also the side effects of certain medications such as um, Paxil and Prozac and um, mm-hmm. the elderly, specifically and teenagers and their risk of um, increase of self-harm thoughts. Yeah. And I don't think that her doctors were very good at that. Mm-hmm. It's it's such a an, you know an individual thing. There's so many different kinds of medication, and it's one reason it's so important to be working with a a talented mental health advocate. You know, someone who really understands what they're doing. And uh, I'm glad that you were able to go on this journey to getting to a a comfortable place right now. I think yeah, you said. I feel. I didn't know, obviously, like, I, I was kind of ignorant about all these, you know, things because I never thought I had any mental health issues. Um, right. My doctor has been really good at listening to me. Um, I was a little bit, I'm going to be very honest here. I was a, very, a bit skeptical at first that she would be helpful because her office is very clear, in her office, it's very clear that she's super Christian, like, mm-hmm. so Christian. And I'm like, oh, God. I don't think I'm going to get anything here. Like, I don't think I'm going to get like the help I need. Uh, but my husband had had been seeing her husband because they have like a joint practice. And uh, he's like, they're pretty cool. Don't worry about it. And I was like, fine. Because I didn't have a, like part of my mental health struggle is that I wasn't taking care of myself. So I didn't have a primary care physician. I didn't have like all the things that you should have when you move to a mm-hmm. new city. Right. And so he, my husband recommended them to me and I was like, fine, I'll go um, so I can get my medication. And she was really sweet and honest. And she's like, I can see like, you know, she did, she did uh, talk to me about my depression and my anxiety. And she's like, well, sometimes what happens is we've been white knuckling for so long. And like, even though you're high achieving, that doesn't mean you haven't been you know, dealing with this other thing and let's make your life easier and all these other things. And when that medication didn't work out, she was like, well, I feel like all the SSRIs are going to do the same thing to you, which is often um, the one that's prescribed the most for people, um, SSRIs. And she was like, there's this other classification of drugs that are SNRIs, which are often helpful when SSRIs are not helpful to these people. And she's like, but she was really open if like, if this doesn't work out for you, we can look for other medications. Don't worry to tell me. Like, don't don't tell me it's working when it's not. And 
now I can say pretty confidently that um, I feel like I'm rediscovering myself. Mm -hmm. It's like getting reacquainted with someone you used to know. Yes. And I find myself smiling more and I find myself enjoying life more and being instead of doing. (laughs) Um, And my therapist asked me the other day, like, so when was the last time you felt like you could just be? And I was like, well, I think I was nine years old. And she was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, I don't know. I just, another like interesting part of my medication journey is that, you know, how I I spoke earlier about my muscle spasms, which were a very clear indicator of when I was feeling anxiety. And sometimes they would happen while I was doing other things, like maybe, doing work on illustrator that was like I was doing a lot but I was just like drawing or whatever to kind of take my mind off things Mm -hmm. um and that 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 to me signaled like I'm under stress or I'm under attack or I'm oh I have anxiety now that I've taken SNRIs which um my doctor explained to me that they help with regulating your fight or flight response Uh uh-huh Um, Because I think I was all like perpetually in my uh, fight response, (laughs) (laughs) which is where the anger comes from. Um, The so so you're like really prickly to everything around you, and like super high, like your your senses are heightened to like a not good degree. I haven't had a muscle spasm, and I've been in stressful situations, (laughs) (laughs) and even before like doing the littlest thing. Like if I misspelled something, I would like beat up myself over it. And now I'm like, you just fix it. That's fine. That's It's just so incredible to move from from that extreme to this like this kind of evenness, this ease that comes in this next Well, step. I feel like I'm being so relaxed, which I probably am not. It's just that I was so high strung that, <laughs> that now I'm just a normal person. But like you said at the beginning, you're just like, who is this new person? And maybe these meds are not the right meds for me because now I, this is not how I'm going to operate through life. Like, what is this? And, you know, my therapist keeps saying like, no, you're, you're just getting to like a more even place. (laughs) Right. Well, seeing, just hearing you talk about what a difference medication has made for you and knowing how much it's helped other people. Um, the stigma around taking medication is it's very disappointing and dangerous. And I know for you specifically, you talked about how there seems in your perspective, there seems to be even more of a stigma around taking medication for anxiety and depression specifically versus other mental illnesses. Yeah. So I'm not, okay. So I'm not a a scientist. Obviously I did both my degrees in English. So this is not a scientific experiment (laughs) that I have or like a sociological (laughs) experiment that I know, but it seems to me like if let's say you have a schizophrenia or um, some other type of mental illness that has been like documented extensively then taking medication to manage that mental illness becomes acceptable, right? Mm-hmm. It it seems to me. But if you are dealing with depression and anxiety, in my experience, people used to tell me just like, why can't you lighten up? Why can't you be happier? Why can't you smile more? And I think that for the longest time, I 
I took those things to heart. I took, I took all those comments and made them part of another part of my failure of being the perfect person was that I couldn't just pull myself out of my depression and my anxiety. Yeah. That I couldn't let things go that I could like, it was all my fault. So, you know, it just fueled my, the, the thing that didn't need more fueling, you know? Um, and you know, it, part of that became from my family. Um, and the way that I explained it to my mom was like, because part of part of this is also that um, for the longest time we've we've had a contentious relationship um, until I started therapy and I started being more assertive with her. Um, and I said, "You take medication for your diabetes, right?" And she's like, "Yeah." And I'm like, "Do you want me to tell you that you should control your sugar levels on your own? You should be strong enough to do that." And she's like, "Well, I can't do that." I'm like, "Well." I have a chemical imbalance that's likely hereditary and I can't do that either. <laughs> right. And then she said, oh, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not a conversation I would have been able to have without therapy because um, medication can only go so far. And, you know, my doctor keeps telling me, are you still going to therapy? Like she wants to make sure that I'm not trying to just solve everything with just one pill. Right. Which obviously would be like, that's another thing. Um, I've known people who just got medicated by their PCP without ever going to a single counseling or therapy session. And, and primary healthcare physicians, uh, they're great. I'm not saying they're not, but they are not trained in mental health to the degree that a psychologist or psychiatrist is. Right. There's that's where a lot of the misdiagnosing and misprescription occurs. And if you're not, if you're relying on a pill and not going to therapy, yeah, going to therapy sometimes suck sucks. I'm not gonna lie because sometimes I have a great therapy session and everything's great and I'm smiling the whole time. And other times I'm sobbing the entire session and I feel like a wreck because progress is mm-hmm. not linear, but it's still progress. <laughs> Right. And if you're burying everything and hoping that a pill can fix it, it's like taking, again, again with the diabetes, diabetes, like it's like taking all the medications for your diabetes, but still like eating ice cream every day. Yeah. There's only so much that uh, the medication is going to be able to like counteract that. And it has very like telling physical um, things now, mental health doesn't have like physical repercussions as long as much as we're saying like it's not going to rot out. Like you're not going to have your toe cut off, right? Because of your like sugar, but you're just you're just putting a band aid on like a very deep wound if you're just using medication and not going to therapy. Exactly, it's a combination of both is what can really make the biggest difference. Well, and also finding a therapist that you trust. Like I was talking to someone um, the other day, like a Twitter friend, and she was saying how her mom made her go to therapy. And it was this like super Christian dude who told her that because she couldn't have children, she was worthless or whatever. And like, it was like a, like a just very religious based, like patriarchy based therapy that was not helpful to her at all. And she was like scarred from those sessions Mm -hmm. and you should find someone you trust. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Well, yeah. And a lot of people don't live in big city cities where you can have access to that. Like, let's say you live in a small town in Texas because Texas, mm, small towns, <laughs> super religious, right? Like I live in San Antonio, which is the city and it's big and it's, you know, it's somewhat religious, but it's not like small towns in Texas religious. Right. And it's pretty liberal. But um, so if you don't have access to someone, um, most healthcare plans have like telemental health included in it. So you, you could look into that. Yeah, absolutely. There are, with the internet, it, there's a lot more options than there used to be. And uh, while it would be ideal if everybody could get into an office physically, mm-hmm. um, for some people, it's actually, I think they find it really helpful not having to be in the same room, you know, doing it over the phone or over Skype, uh, particularly for people who may have very severe social anxiety or um, just different social issues. Um, It's amazing the wide variety of things that are available to people now. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I'm so happy about that because like I said, there's people, there are people who live in small towns with very little access to mental health practitioners who are either like gender affirming, sexuality affirming, uh, mm-hmm. or just, you know, not based on religion and make you try to convert again when you're questioning your religion, you know? Right. Absolutely. In this journey that you've taken with the podcast and your mental health I'm curious to know, since since you have embarked on the podcast and since you have been taking care of yourself through mental health, uh, you know, through therapy and medication, I wonder how your relationship with the Harry Potter series has changed in this time. I think the only thing that has changed is that I started, like, seeing Harry through, like, a lens of anxiety and depression of, like, oh, my God, you poor thing. You don't know you're depressed. Um, and I'm not saying like he, like Harry as a character suffers like severe depression, but he's definitely grappling with some deep seated issues and PTSD from his childhood that could be read as anxiety and or depression, especially yeah. in later books. But I can see it even in Goblet of Fire. Absolutely. He's constantly uh, <laughs> racked with different mental illness uh, symptoms. And it's uh, going back and reading them with a new perspective on mental health has been, I know it's been enlightening for many people who I've spoken to on the podcast. And when we start to have compassion for Harry, you know, we can have more compassion for ourselves. It's a wonderful mirror. Yeah, because if we, I don't know about you, that's that's the great, I think that's the best thing you've said um, about compassion. Um, I really like that because I can have so much compassion for other people and characters. And before medication, I would in therapy, I would have no compassion for myself. Mm-hmm. A, a tool that my therapist has given me is to like when I'm feeling like anxious or something about something that happened when I was five, because I, I still have these flashbacks that are of embarrassing moments. Mm-hmm. And I feel very ashamed of them for some reason, um, because high strung still, even on medication. (laughs) Um, I, as an adult, talk to myself as a child 
in my mind Mm -hmm. and I hug her and I tell her she's seen and she's loved and that, you know, it was a funny thing and the adults were laughing, not at her, but that she said something funny and not, you know, like it wasn't that, that embarrassment she felt when the adults were laughing. It wasn't because the adults were laughing at her. It was because she was being cute. Mm-hmm. Or something like that. And that self-soothing and that self-compassion goes a long way. Yeah. It's such an important part of no matter what anybody's mental health journey is, that's key, I think, for uh, making any kind of progress. And I think also being open with, I mean, I'm not saying everyone needs to be open, but if you feel comfortable enough to be open with your mental health issues, like I think that this podcast is amazing because we're all like, here because we're willing to be open about our mental health struggles and that makes people feel less alone and i'm quite open since i started therapy about talking about my mental health journey even on my podcast i was like well i was in therapy the other day and this happened and i think i talk about therapy and being from puerto rico at least once every time like it could be a drinking game at this point um for for listeners (laughs) um But I think it's so important if you so feel inclined in your mental health journey to be open with your friends and be open and vulnerable with, um, I'm open and vulnerable with my listeners as well, because I feel like for the longest time I was so shut off from everyone and I was afraid to make myself feel vulnerable and look vulnerable. And vulnerability is the the big thing about vulnerability is it allows us to make connections to each other. And now that I'm just like willing to be this vulnerable person, I feel like I'm making connections much faster with people that I'm making more friendships. Um, and that, um, I feel like people feel less alone. Um, and even close friends, I didn't know were dealing with their own mental health struggles were like, Oh my God, me too what are you taking? And we're just like, we're just switching like information. Like we're like trading baseball cards or Pokemon cards. Like, (laughs) oh, so this person made me feel like this. You know, like you just, we're bonding over something that usually never gets talked about. Yeah. And like Madison, you and I like kind of instantly clicked because of the topic. Not only we're just both podcasters, right? And we're interested in each other's podcast topics and focuses but we're just I was just like oh and this is my mental health journey (laughs) (laughs) it's I think that what you said being open is the key and it's terrifying it's something you know I know I personally have had to work on a lot over the past few years Mm -hmm. um but then in these moments of vulnerability like you know where you like we met at Leviosa and every time you meet somebody from online, even if it's at a Harry Potter convention, it's like, okay, (laughs) this is the moment I meet my internet friends. This is the thing they tell you you're not supposed to do when you're a kid. But you know, we live in a different world now where uh, meeting strangers on the internet is not so uncommon anymore. But I think that being open and not being afraid to, you know, say what's on your mind like 
when we started this call, you know, I said, I said, like, I've been having a difficult depression week. Um, and you think sometimes that those things are going to be the things that push somebody away. And, and maybe that's the case when people haven't really done the work that they need to do with their mental health. Mm-hmm. But um, I think in the past few years, I've learned that I have made more connections by being open and by being vulnerable and sharing. And, you know, the whole foundation, the idea of this podcast, you know, uh, just to that sharing and being vulnerable can help you grow in ways that you didn't even expect the uncovering the things that you didn't know were inside you. So I completely agree. Yeah. Well, and speaking about that, like having a bad depression week, like I've had a few, even while on medication. And mm-hmm. at first I was surprised and I was like, does this mean the medication is not working? Um, but absolutely not. Like it, it just means that you, the medication makes it easier for you to cope with things. It just, it's not going to eliminate it a hundred percent, you know? Yeah. There's still going to be difficult times and that's, that's true no matter what your mental health journey is, you know? Yeah. Um, but also like you're like you being so generous about, you know, this is what I've been going through this last week. Um, I'm just like, yep, been there. Like it, it made us connect on a, even a, a, a more than, you know, it didn't push me away because I get it. I'm like, yep, been there. It's hard. And uh, sometimes I have to tell people because um, now, you know, we have social media and we have a producer um, at MuggleNet um, for Occupolitics, right? So I'm like, hey guys, sorry I've been MIA for the last week. It wasn't intentional. It's nothing personal. I've been having a really bad depression week and that usually makes me push everyone away. Mm -hmm. So I haven't been in contact because I've been dealing with some stuff. Yeah. (laughs) And, and I feel like I need to say that because I don't want any, anyone to ever think that I'm just being flippant and I don't care about anyone. It's just that it's hard because I tend to push everyone away and shut off everything when I'm having like one of those bad weeks. Yeah, definitely. That's <laughs> And I do the same thing. And it's so nice to be in a community and and then a team, you know, like our team for Beyond yeah. Fail. They're always understanding if I have to take a week off or something. And it's, I want to spread this kind of acceptance and make people feel more and more like that's accessible to them, that they can have their own communities of safety regarding their mental health. Yeah. And then um, I think also a part of being open, like I did this whole Twitter thread about getting my words back. Um, Mm -hmm. And and I, it was like, like 20 tweets or something. And like, I was like, Hey, so like, this is like how I'm coping with like my depression and anxiety. And a lot of people didn't know, um, this was on my personal Twitter, um, that I was dealing with that because they are not Harry Potter people who listen to the podcast. I mean, mm-hmm. we should all be Harry Potter people, but I guess not all of us <laughs> are that great. Um, and so they had no idea that I was going through that. And they were just like, wow, like I, I you know, and like, I could, you know, a lot of people are like, I can relate to this or like, thank you for sharing this. This was beautiful. Or like, they felt like I, for, for the first time in a long time, they fully got a new part of me that they were just like, sometimes she's like very active. Sometimes she's not like, and like getting an understanding of why maybe helps people like connect to you on a different level and not feel like you're just some 
some bitch or something. Sorry, I, I'm not, I don't know if I can swear on this. Oh, no, you can. So, you know, like this ice queen, like this, that's the perspective, like a lot of my friends told me I, they had of me for a long time in college was that I was just like this ice queen. And it's, I'm not that person at all. Like when you get to know me, um, mm-hmm. I'm very, like, I, I want to think that I'm very bubbly and loving and accepting of everyone. Um, but my outward appearance when I'm like depressed or like trying to push everyone away is I'm very like unapproachable and hopefully I don't get to be that person anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Although sometimes it helps like when you don't want to be disturbed at a bar. Absolutely. Keep that boundary up for (laughs) people you don't want near you. Exactly. But um, hopefully I'm not that person. I I don't, I I can, you know, people can move from that, like being the outward persona and getting to know like this person that I am. And like um, through the podcast, making like this connections with the Harry Potter community and like through MuggleNet, like getting to meet such awesome people like yourself and getting almost rid of my social anxiety and like getting out there and being vulnerable and meeting new people. Um, The other day, there's this like app within Bumble, the dating app, there's Bumble BFF. And it's great for meeting people who have just moved into the area to make girlfriends. And I went to coffee the other day with one and we were just going to have coffee for one hour. We sat down and when we looked up, we'd been there for six hours just talking. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah, no. And we talked about like our mental health and like everything under the sun. And, um, Obviously, mental health was one of the things we, like, bonded over. But, like, we bonded over a lot of other things. And she's also a writer and, like, all these great things. But I'm like, man, like, it feels great to, like, be able to connect and not double, like, guess guess myself. Of, like, does she really like me? I'm sure she's just being nice. You know, like, because that's, like, what was going on in my brain the entire time um, when I had social interactions. And then I would feel rejected when no one had rejected me. But then, like, my mm-hmm. awkwardness or, like, my demeanor sometimes make people reject me because of my social anxiety so it's this vicious cycle that fed my social anxiety what a wonderful way to i mean gryffindor so brave and having the courage to breaking out of that uh what a great function for the like dating app you know uh, structure just for friendship which so many of us are seeking in this digital age um, well, as we kind of wrap things up here, uh, I want to know if you have any final words of wisdom or advice, anything that you want to share for anybody listening. I think the biggest thing I've learned because I was isolating myself from people and didn't want to be vulnerable to people is to, and I know this is hard because it was so hard for me. It took me like a few years to realize that I could do this is just ask for help and then people will show up for you. Um, Like I said before, I I didn't have like the best relationship with my mom growing up and like we're still working on it. But when I needed her help and I said, I can't do this by my own mom. She, thankfully she's retired this, she just retired this year, this last year. And she flew a few times to help me out for a couple of weeks when I just couldn't function. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. she like did my laundry, she cleaned the house. Like that's, she's good in a crisis um, is what I've learned. 
and she's very willing to help. Um, uh-huh. So I, if, if I need help, I'll call her or I'll, call, I'll tell my husband I need help or even my friends. And I'm like, I'm going through these really hard thing and I need help. And they all just, you know, like your good friends will drop anything and everything and be with you um, just as I would for them. But I always felt like me asking for that would be too much, even though I'd be willing to drop everything for anyone that I call my friend. Because um, mm-hmm. I want it to never depend on someone else, right? Like we we are fed the myth of self-sufficiency when community is what right. makes us great. Like be, having a community is what helps us get ahead in life and having like a collaborative community and someone and people you can lean on is key. So asking for help, it has been the greatest thing that I have learned so far. Thank you so much for that. That is a... And it's a reminder to everybody listening that help is out there waiting. Just uh, it's just so important to ask. Also, go to therapy, everyone, even if you think you don't need it. Trust me. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) please do that. (laughs) Uh, Well, Adri, thank you so much for being on the show with us. It has been wonderful to get to record another podcast with you. Madison, it's been such a treat. And I hope that you come back and record with me again, because it was one of my favorite recording sessions ever. Well, uh, where can everybody uh, find Acupolitics and you, any social media you want to share? Oh, sure. Um, you can find Acupolitics at Acupolitics everywhere on social media. It's very well branded um, <laughs> because no one had that handle because it's such a weird name. Um, <laughs> but um, you can find the podcast everywhere you listen to podcasts. We um, are on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and all the podcatcher apps. Because when you're on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, you're at the other ones as well. Um, I think I'm also on Google Play and YouTube so if you're one of those people who has YouTube in the background at work listening to podcasts, you can do that. And my personal uh, handle is at Anana Banana. That's one N in all those things. A-N-A-N-A Banana. Um, my Twitter is locked, but I will approve you if I see your profile and doesn't look like you're a bot. <laughs> It's just locked for uh, it's just locked for work purposes. I don't want my colleagues finding my uh, controversial tweets, um, <laughs> which are which are more about like just how liberal I am. I'm not quite sure in Texas like how liberal my coworkers are uh, yet. So. Understood. <laughs> so that's why it's locked. It's not because I don't want anyone to follow me, um, but also on Instagram, also Anana Banana. Perfect. Well, thank you for that and. Uh, Thank you for being on with us. Thank you for having me. I hope you all enjoyed today's interview. Thank you for listening. If you want to share your story as a guest on the show, please visit our website and fill out our submission form. You can also share your story anonymously as a whisper. Every whisper we get will be read at the end of the show. Over the next couple of weeks, please send me your thoughts on Dementors, Patronuses, and your tips on how you overcome the Dementors in your life. 
I look forward to our next chat in the headmaster's office. Take care.